0: Since the beginning of 2020, Raju Nairasetti has been leading McKinsey & Company's global publishing operations. It's a vast editorial group that publishes some of the best thought leadership around, and publishes it in the form of online and print articles, podcasts, videos, data visualization, and other formats. Raju and his team are on a path to triple the size of McKinsey's audience over five years. I met Raju in person for the first time this November, when he and his number two person, Lucia Rahili, who is deputy publisher and global editorial director at McKinsey, both spoke at our sixth annual Profiting from Thought Leadership Conference. Raju has been a pioneering business journalist since the late 1980s, when he helped the Economic Times of India launch that country's first weekend section for any business newspaper. He went on to cover business at a daily newspaper in Dayton, Ohio, before working at his first stint at the Wall Street Journal, a company he stayed at for the first time for about 14 years. There, his roles included editor of the European edition of the Wall Street Journal and deputy managing editor. He was also founder and editor-in-chief of an Indian business newspaper called Mint, and he worked there for three years. He then went on to the Washington Post for three years, from 2009 to 2012, where he helped boost the online editions audience. And then Raju headed back to the Wall Street Journal, where he was named Senior Vice President in charge of growth and strategy at News Corporation, which had bought the Wall Street Journal's parent company, Dow Jones and Company, a few years earlier. Raju then became CEO of Gizmodo, which is an online news site, and there he managed 17 digital sites and an editorial operations team of 250 people. He then taught at Columbia University for a year and a half, where he was a professor at its Graduate School of Journalism. Before he came to McKinsey in January of 2020, I spoke to Raju about a number of things, all about the topic of thought leadership. The first one is how McKinsey is able to produce such high-quality thought leadership at such high volume. The second was how the firm has changed the way it presents its thought leadership content, especially with data visualization on the McKinsey.com site and the impact of that. Third, we talked about the adjustments he has had to make in going from working as a journalist for media companies to moving to thought leadership publishing in a professional services firm, McKinsey. Fourth, he offered his views on the state of thought leadership as a profession, as a career for people in and outside of journalism, and how companies such as McKinsey can better prepare people for these careers. Finally, Raju talked about where he sees McKinsey's thought leadership publishing operations going over the next few years. Raju, it's fantastic to have you here on our video podcast. I have so many questions to ask you, and I will probably only be able to go through a few of them. Um, well, thank you for having me, Bob.
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Terrific. So, why don't we begin with um, when somebody goes to the McKinsey site or has been on the McKinsey site, especially in, since COVID in, in early 2020, one of the things that stands out since then is how much content and how much high quality content the firm has been able to produce. What makes that possible? What has- Thank you. I mean, I
1: appreciate you calling it, uh, labeling it high quality, because we tend to think of it as that as well. I think there's both the two aspects to it, right? One is just the supply side of things, and one is the demand side of things. Let me take each one. On the supply side, uh, which is creating content, I think there are a couple of reasons why. Um, first of all, McKinsey has been doing it for close to, I would say, about 60 years now. The quarterly began 58 years ago. So they're one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer of the idea of thought leadership, even though we don't necessarily define it as such. And I think it began with the simple idea that if you have good ideas and insights, and if you put them out there, that that's good for business you don't have to actually kind of you know, use that as a traditional lead gen, as many people directly do. And so what that meant was that from a supply side, it created this interesting pull, which is how you do at McKinsey, um, not perhaps when you just join it, but as you move up the ranks to go from a BA to an engagement manager, to an associate partner, to a partner, to a senior partner, A fairly significant part of your measurement of your contribution to the firm is knowledge. Are you actually coming up with good insights and are you kind of putting it out there? So that has created a bit of a built-in incentive for people to think about what lessons can I draw from a range of client service work I have done and kind of elevate that. And then very smartly, I think um, they also created a group of people uh, who would then help kind of, these are editors, and these are people who can discuss with you and how to kind of then take the idea that you might have. So it has created a fairly steady um, supply. Uh, So we are not in a position where we are having to, a lot of companies um, want to do thought leadership, but they find that the executives are too busy actually doing their day jobs and they don't think of it as their day job. So you have to go beg and kind of cajole them into doing it. It never ever works that way. At McKinsey, we are in a very happy position of like people being measured by their contributions to business knowledge. And as a result, there's a constant stream of like, hey, I want to write about this, or I have an idea. Uh, We've done a bunch of client engagements and uh, are able to draw some lessons. Will you help us turn this into a insights article? So the supply side has been fairly taken care of. The demand side um, has been interesting. Um, When COVID happened, the traditional McKinsey way of engaging with the world, which was like very personal, right? Meeting the CEOs and visiting them and talking about what we can do, pretty much disappeared overnight. And as a result, publishing, which was always good to have as a companion to what McKinsey did on the consulting side, became the only way we could tell the world that we can help them. And I think as a result, the demand for like wanting to put more things out there also soared. And because of the processes that have been in place for a very long time, whether, whether it's around risk and syndication and quality guardrails uh, and all of that, we were able to fairly dramatically increase the output, if you will, we actually, I think the first year of COVID, we uh, more we almost doubled the number of articles we were publishing with the, exactly the same team. The quality, I, I think that aspect of it comes from the recognition that we are not trying to just inform our audiences. Uh, I think the whole mission of McKinsey Publishing, I would say, is um, we're trying to solve problems. So we think of it as this journey from insights to impact. So when you look at a piece of uh, uh, thought leadership, if you will, we're constantly looking for, is this actionable? Are there things here that somebody who's reading it can apply to their own situation? What you will rarely find us doing is being prescriptive, right? telling somebody, this is the way to do it. Oftentimes, most McKinsey content tends to be scenarios saying here are four or five different ways of doing it. And if your particular situation seems to be this, perhaps this scenario is best for you. And leaving it up to the audience to kind of figure that out. I think Bob, most people don't realize that one of the biggest challenges in thought leadership publishing, especially at a place like McKinsey, is that first of all, the creation is being done by people who are really, really experts at what they're doing, right? They know this topic very well. They've like done multiple years of work on this. So the challenge there is to kind of sometimes lift them out of the granularity of what they're doing. But the other side of this is also our readers. We are aiming for not a very generalized audience, but typically um, uh, VPs and above general managers and VPs and all the way to the board But these are also people who have a fairly good understanding of that topic. So the challenge then is to kind of not, then you're not dumbing it down, but you're trying to kind of distill the lessons and make sure that when somebody who's a CFO reads something about valuation, it doesn't feel like we are talking down to them, but it feels like we are helping them apply it to a situation. And that's the magic, I think. And over the years, I think McKinsey has done a pretty good job with it and built up an audience, and um, oftentimes people do turn to us first, I hope, um, before they turn to others.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, I think your your CEO book, CEO Excellence book, exemplifies what you're talking about. I mean, there are a number, a number of books aimed at CEOs and published over the last 20 or so years, right? But this book has done exceedingly well, I think, as a bestseller, right, as a business bestseller. And it's um, it's mentioned all over the place, the book and and some of the material. McKinsey's book, CEO Excellence, The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best Leaders from the Rest, was authored by three McKinsey partners, Carolyn Dewar, Scott Keller, and Vikram Malhotra. The book hit the market in March of 2022. It was based on 20 years of data on 7,800 CEOs from 3,500 publicly held companies in 24 sectors and 70 countries. The authors also interviewed 67 CEOs at financially successful companies, including Microsoft's Satya Nadella, Netflix's Reed Hastings, and J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon. The book has been on a number of bestseller lists, including the highly coveted New York Times bestseller list. And so that's obviously among the most sophisticated audience, executive audiences around CEOs, the people running, you know, big firms, mid-sized big firms, small firms, especially the big ones. And so catering to those people who are among the most sophisticated people in business, you know, cannot be easy. And I, I guess I imagine it's easy to dumb things down and to insult the intelligence of somebody at a CEO level. At the same time, they many of them are not aware of some arcane technical complexities. Things like metaverse, right? They've heard about it. They're not really there, <laughs> you know, to to um, you know to try to dissect is the metaverse real for our company? Using that as an example, so so it's got to be a, a not an easy audience to write for.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the myths about thought leadership, especially for those who are outside it is that they think of it much more perhaps as like an extended version of public relations or corporate comms. What they don't understand is that really good uh, insights are often based on a lot of original first party data. And I think that also separates us from a lot of others who write about it, where just to give you an example, um, McKinsey Global Surveys, we have a panel of close to 30,000 executives who give us first party data. And out of that come out a lot of insights. And that's data that you don't get anywhere else. That's very timely. We can ask questions. We can respond very quickly to uh, what's happening. For example, if there's a war in Ukraine, what does that mean for energy? what does that mean for supply chain if there is a pandemic? But we can actually get real-time responses and that leads to then um, insights that are based on kind of contemporary actual facts on the ground rather than just kind of op-ed kind of writing. I think a lot of people confuse thought leadership with just kind of opinion writing, uh, but for a commercial purpose. And I think that's the other difference as well. I mean, CEO Excellence is a great example. Uh, I have it back up there. It's the first book I, in my role as publisher published, and it it is a bestseller. It made every single New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, you name it. It's just about hitting 100,000 copies in hardbound 9 months after it's come out so we are very happy with it but the reality is that it's also based on a very rigorous database that looked at 4500 companies and years of data distilled that uh, to you know 60 or 70 ceos applied a lot of very rigorous metrics and then talked to them right the other strength that mckinsey has is over time i think we are credible enough that some of our senior partners who we call them as CEO counselors almost, have the ability to talk to some of the biggest kind of industrial leaders and get them to open up. And so when you combine that kind of personal insights with this rigorous database, and then when you write it in a way that doesn't talk down to people, and also I think the other magic to thought leadership, and you know this Bob very well, is to really define your audiences. If you were writing a book for CEOs, honestly, it's a very small audience, right? There are only that many number of CEOs. But the way to think about a book like this for us is the concentric circles of audiences, right? A lot of people aspire to be a CEO. Oftentimes, these are fresh MBAs who think that 20 years out, they will become one or the C-suite. And so I think the way to think about publishing at McKinsey is to think about like who the audience is And are we kind of providing them enough information? But again, I go back to my original point, which is we are not just about informing people, we are about helping them solve their problem. And if you keep that in mind, I think uh, we tend to be successful in bringing people back to us. The next time they have a problem, they come and say, let me see if McKinsey has published something on this.
0: Yes so ceo excellence um and i i don't know you know what went into the book all i see is what you know the final product i guess i think it would be interesting to know you know how long it took to do the research for that book how to do the analysis to do the the writing you know just to give people a sense of it's not like the authors and perhaps some editorial help sat down over a couple of weeks and 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 churned out this book. Give us a sense for, for how long that process was. And, and when
1: again, it... I mean, I go back to this idea, we are not here to write books, right? That's not the end intent. It always comes out of years of doing something and saying, hey, we are starting to see some patterns that are repeating themselves. And it seems worth our time because book writing, as you know, is fairly intense. It takes away significant time of our senior partners. Um, so we have a pretty high bar on what topics might lend themselves to a book, but it always almost comes out of years of the the authors actually having worked on it. And in this case, it took about a couple of years from yep. the time. Um, so it began with a McKinsey Quarterly article, actually. And one of the big interesting things about us is that we are putting a lot of energy into saying. How is our content actually doing? And learning learning lessons from that, right? So this article was a hit, if you will, several hundred thousand reads. And that gave us a sense that there is clearly appetite for this. And we had a database, we had a lot of expertise, and then three of the authors said, we can make the time and let's kind of see if we can come up with like uh, you know 10 or 12 chapters and what would those be? Would they convey different things? And it took about, from the time they first engaged, um, they reached out to me, uh, by the time the book came out, it was about almost two years, but some of that has to do with the book publishing industry. As you know, mainstream publishers usually take six to nine months from the time you turn in a fully uh, edited manuscript. Um, and so um, so it took about two years. The idea, we, we parked it a little bit at the beginning of COVID, picked it up at, towards the like end of 2020, and then it came out uh, 2022, March.
0: Now, was that the first book you've been involved in, in your career?
1: Um, as a publisher, yes. yes. Um, I have not written one. I don't think I'll ever write one. Um, <laughs> I, I work on very short-term deadlines. If somebody tells me, turn in a manuscript six months from now, I will get to it like five months, 25 days into it. Um, uh, but since then, we've published... Um, uh, three other books. Um, and I'm happy to say that a couple of them have also become um, bestsellers of different kinds. So I'm pretty happy about
0: that. So I'd love to know your insights on, you know, on on producing and, and marketing, but especially producing great books, especially since this is kind of a new thing for you. Any revelations, any, any things that you didn't realize about, you know, uh, the creation of a great business book? Uh, that until you kind of saw the process and were involved in the process, you didn't realize uh, before? Um, I had a couple of hypotheses
1: and both I think panned out the right way. One is, and I'm, you know, uh, most consultants think they can write. Some can write, but very few can write a book. To hold a narrative arc over, let's say, 300 pages is a very specialized skill. Not many of us have it inherently. So one of the things we do is we always kind of bring in uh, a editor, writer, collaborator very early in the process, all the way from the proposal stage to then finishing it. Because we also want to, one of the things that um, I didn't realize was the book publishing industry is very skeptical of groupthink. Mm Um, So when you go to a big publisher like a Random House um, or HarperCollins, they love the idea. But when you say they're going to be three, four authors, they're like, will this have a voice actually? Will it actually have like that kind of, you know, will be relatable or will it just be like a bunch of consultants kind of putting in a lot of jargon into it, right? So one of the ways we address that was to say that our books have a writer. So there's actually a uh, kind of a voice that continues throughout. And then the other thing is like to bring in storytelling examples, right? Because unless we can illustrate these profound themes in some cases with real people willing to talk about like both ups and downs um, and our ability to access those people, whether it's like the Satya Nadalas of the world or Jamie Dimon's or the Mukesh Ambani's of the world. I think that combination then makes it very interesting but again, as you know, Bob, um, the book business is, um, has become a little bit like Hollywood, where the big uh, production houses will, will, fund, will fund, will create a lot of movies, but put their marketing only behind what they think are blockbusters. So a lot of the owners tends to be on us to figure out how do we create a demand for this book, right? which we know is good. So one of the unique things we have done at McKinsey over the last two years is actually create a McKinsey on Books ecosystem. By that, I mean, um, we have created a series called Author Talks, where
0: once a week now, we talk to an author of a new business book. Nothing to do with McKinsey. I find McKinsey on Books to be very inventive and pretty unique in thought leadership. What it signifies to me is that McKinsey is serious about business books, and it should be. It is where the mega hit of the 1980s In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman came from. As Raju told me, McKinsey started this McKinsey on Books two years ago, having noticed that book promotion has gotten more difficult. Book publishers don't put much marketing muscle behind business books. They reserve it for their tried-and-true blockbuster authors of the past, and the book review pages of newspapers and magazines have been dwindling as well. According to an article by Stephen Mintz, a history professor at the University of Texas, Austin, this September in a trade magazine for colleges and universities called Inside Higher Ed, the book review sections of several major newspapers are gone, including the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. The New York Times book review section is the last one that is solely for book reviews. So if you look at McKinsey on Books, They have video interviews of their discussions with 129 business book authors to date, ranging from former Pepsi CEO Indra Nooyi and Fortune magazine writer Peter Gumbel to University of Toronto strategy professor Roger Martin and Marcus Buckingham.
1: Because we felt like there was a gap where our audience likes business books, doesn't have the time to obviously read every single business book. And... Increasingly, there's not a lot of places where you can read book reviews anymore, right? They've become very few. Sure, there are lots of podcasts with authors, but that requires a fairly significant time commitment. So what we came up with was like five questions. We talked to the author about the book and we've done it now for two years. We've done about 120 of them. The advantage of that is I have actually created an ecosystem of readers who now enjoy reading about business books. So that then gives us a platform to then say, when our book comes out, to kind of put it as part of that. So we kind of, we don't, McKinsey doesn't believe in uh, advertising. We don't like spend money on like promoting our services or all of that. So this was a way for us to create a natural ecosystem for book readers, book lovers of business books. And when our book comes out, there's a valuable platform and audience that then kind of absorbs this and it amplifies the fact that we have a potentially a good book out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and um, I think as you're saying, it it attracts the serious business book reader to to that part of your site, you know, so that when you publish another serious business book, right, they're there, though you know they're ready they're ready to listen to to your your and read your your latest book yeah we've created a habit, right? We've created a habit of every week telling people that there's any
1: conversation with an interesting uh, interesting conversation with an author of a new business book, right And it's, it's the thing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how do I respect the one single non-renewable resource my audiences have, which is their time? so we are we try to be succinct we try to kind of kind of get in and out give them something actionable but once you create that habit we find that we are able to bring people back on a very consistent basis so i'm not spending a lot of time chasing new audiences i am absolutely chasing new audiences but because i have the ability to kind of bring people back on a consistent basis i have a fairly large audience that's built in
0: Yes, and this I think goes all the way back to as you said, 1964, when McKinsey Quarterly started to build it. Obviously, at the time, a print audience, and then print and online, and uh, a pretty. Uh, a, 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 as I remember, at one time, you could only get McKinsey Quarterly, the print version, if a McKinsey partner said, um, "We'll send it to you." You know, um, and, and, it is still, it is still
1: a very. Um, it's not an elite list. But it's still a very tightly uh, controlled list of people who get it, um, mostly C-suite, and we are also um, very conscious of the amount of footprint we want to our carbon footprint and all of that. So we want to make sure that, like, we are sending it to people who really want it, and sending it from people who really want to send it. Yeah, there's no point in sending. 25 copies to an office and they're just lying around in, in the reception. So we're very careful about that. And if anything, I think we we are increasingly trying to shift that audience to a much more of a digital audience, because I think all of us need to do what we can for the planet. Um, so in that sense, we are doing that. So it is a fairly uh, controlled list of people who can get it. Um, there's a bit of a attraction in Saying that money can't buy it, right? You can't literally buy the McKinsey quarterly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, and just you know, what I meant to say was it, it, you know, the only piece of people 20, 30 years ago who could read McKinsey Quarterly were the folks who were, you know, were were sent the print version. What I meant to say was, but the online version opens up that content to anybody who goes on McKinsey.com. The individual articles are available online but as again as you know part of the
1: mystique and part of the magic of a magazine is first of all the serendipitous uh, curation of a set of things right and also the uh, the presentation the packaging and that experience and again that's an area where in the last 2 3 years in particular we have spent a lot of energy in mckinsey thinking about it and the reason for that is fairly simple i think there was a time when being a first mover was a bit of a lasting advantage. By that I mean, if you're the one who wrote for the first time about a topic and nobody else did, that was a fairly sustainable time advantage. I don't think that's the case anymore at all actually, right? Because there is not really a topic that folks are not writing about. Let's take sustainability, for example, right?
0: Sure.
1: Everybody is writing about sustainability from mainstream media to very niche publications to all of the people that, um, McKinsey thinks are its peers, right? So the question then is, even if we think that our insights on sustainability are unique and better than anybody else, how do you get people to consume it, right? Because only then they will realize that if they read us and read five others, and then they say, okay, McKinsey was better, who has the time to do that? Um, So what we are increasingly trying to do is the experience of consuming a piece of content from McKinsey that you want to read about, that experience is still, can be proprietary and you can sustain your competitive advantage. And the next time somebody says, you know, the last time I read something about sustainability, it was not only insightful in terms of the words, but the graphics, the visuals, the packaging, the interactivity, was all very interesting and useful. So let me go there first, right? And I'll give you a good example from this week. Uh, Just um, yesterday, we published um, a new report from our McKinsey Global Institute called Pixels of Progress. It's what we did was we looked at the world, but divided up into 40,000 micro regions rather than like country view. The biggest difference there is when you When you drill down to these 40,000, divide the world into these 40,000 regions, you get a view that is 230 times more precise than if you were looking at India as a country. We then broke it out into six chapters. The old days, we would have published 200 pages, take it or leave it. We have a very compelling uh, video introduction to it, six, seven, eight minutes, which really kind of lays it out in a way that It almost feels like McKinsey meets the weatherman, right? Lots of moving graphics, and one of our senior partners, who's a key author, talks about it. Uh, Each of the chapters you can read separately. Each has like lots of interesting data, a lot of interactivity. So the collective experience of consuming this from McKinsey is so unique that even if pieces of this information, right, at the end of the day, data about the world is available in lots of places. So we are trying to say amazing content, insightful content, useful content, put an experience layer that is unique and differentiated, and the collective experience of that is what is going to be different than honestly a BCG or Bain or anybody else publishing on the same topic. Does it take resources? Absolutely. There were 12 people from global publishing, front-end developers, back-end developers, coders, designers, analytics people who got all involved in this project. Right, But that's where I think we are starting to separate ourselves from the pack because the idea that we will write something no matter what the topic, metaverse, you name it, and that somebody wouldn't have either written about it or isn't going to follow right away is now, I mean, it's stable stakes having content. So I think that's the direction of travel for us in creating interesting experiences that are useful and also making it more interactive where If you are living where you are living, hopefully you can put in your zip code and it pulls up your micro data because we already have all of the data behind. In the old days, we would just write a very macro level article, 4,000 words, and be done with it. Yes.
0: Well, this is kind of a whole new world that I think has really blossomed um, since, you know, you arrived in early 2020. You got there, what, January, 2020, I think it was? Yeah, I'd like to say COVID and I came to McKinsey together. (laughs) And I love the story you told at our conference in which um, when COVID w- was really hitting, you you put the pause button on publishing and I guess some partners at McKinsey didn't like that. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I mean, the, it was a collective decision in part because I think if we treated
1: the pandemic as business as usual and came out with the normal articles that McKinsey would come out with, right? Um, I think it would have been very easy to misconstrue that and say that these guys are, they only care about business. So we paused and said, what is of value to the world right now? And we came up with two framings. One was this idea that saving lives and livelihoods is the imperative, right? And that was a very senior level discussion. And that framing then allowed us to write about both like issues about business, because end of the day, livelihoods matters, right? also write a lot about the pandemic and what's happening with COVID. We created a COVID response center, a very unique micro environment on our website, a lot of actionable things, a lot of databases on what's happening with COVID. So that framing, and then the second framing was this idea that whatever comes out of it is not going to be going back to something, but it's going to be the next normal. So those two frames then, so we paused and then once we had the framing, we made sure that everything we published was meeting those two lenses, if you will. Yeah,
0: it's fascinating. Because I, one of the things I remember from that time, and it's interesting people remember, but one of the things I remembered were the videos that you did of people talking about how COVID had, obviously in most cases, really altered in a bad way their their lives. This was not a business discussion. This was just about how COVID had worsened their lives. and and i re- I remember that till this day, um because these were these stories told by people, yeah, real people all over real the world.. Like in
1: these video, were right.
0: It's like these were riveting stories, and, and
1: that's people. I think that was um that was a little bit of a turn in um in the direction of travel of um, McKinsey Publishing, where I think we realized the value of storytelling. Like all thought leadership, Bob, and you know this, we operate under very significant constraints um, of not being able to talk about clients, not being able to name names, right? Which makes the writing sometimes feel, to an outsider, somewhat ponderous. But what a lot of people don't realize is that if I were in my old job at the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, and if I were writing an article about something new that was happening in e-commerce, I could simply say, like Amazon, and most audience will get what I'm saying. But in our case, we don't do that because it's entirely possible that Amazon is, was, or could be a client. And so we tend to tend to then write around that idea a little bit. So it sometimes feels like we use dollar words for penny ideas, right? Um, so this is another way for us to say that while protecting the syndication risk and the complexities of all that, confidentiality if we can create better experiences with McKinsey content that then overcomes the fact that you know the writing tends to be somewhat serious
0: yes yes and to address the 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 you know the the difficulty of name dropping of fortune 500 companies um, I guess unless what if it's public if it's something the company has said publicly uh you'll th- that would be used. Uh, I think it's a combination of things. One is
1: that uh, historically we've always emphasized confidentiality, so that still remains very paramount to us. Um, we are getting a little bit looser about um, loosening up a little bit about telling more stories about ourselves, a um, bit more firm narratives and things like that, but they often come with like making sure that who we are talking about is also comfortable with it. There are examples like, for example, one of our... Um, case studies as we call them uh, about how we helped um, use AI um, and digital for a team that eventually won the America's Cup. That was an amazingly compelling story, but you can imagine the possibilities of storytelling with that, right? We just created like really compelling visuals, motion graphics, and then told the story of like the use of technology
0: in helping a business decision. Fascinating. So I'm going to skip to the fifth question um, on my list. And then I'm going to I would love to talk, get your views on your shift from the media to, to the world of professional services. But, but the fifth question is about how do you how do you see McKinsey's thought publishing operations, both the content creation and the experience changing over the next uh, few years? I think it's not going to substantially change from what I'd Talked about where the
1: value proposition is still inside StreamPack, that you will read something from us or you will experience something from us and feel like I can actually apply this to my problem. And we will continue to remain non prescriptive because we understand that you know what your problem is and we can provide different solutions. I think where um, you will see us do more is not just talking about existing problems, but getting ahead of it, right? In kind of saying what does 2030 or 2050 look like and where do we think things are headed and what can you do about it? So that's going to be, I think, um, uh, more forward-looking stuff for sure. Clearly a lot more emphasis on storytelling narrative and making sure that it's engaging. Because again, um, at the end of the day, the only thing I'm competing for with everybody else, I'm not competing with BCG and Bain and uh, you know i am but i'm not what well, i'm really competing for is the one single non renewable resource you have bob which is your time if i can get five more minutes of your time right then it's a win for me right and how do i get that so i'm spending a lot of time thinking about that the other area i think where we are increasingly connecting the dots a bit more is around this idea that who's reading us right i mean Publishing is the top of the funnel, if you will. We bring a lot of audiences to all things McKinsey. Um, But we're also kind of wanting to make sure that uh, we are connecting that with like our internal databases, who's reading us and are we providing them value and are we providing them a 360 view of it, right? Because I don't want to spam you if I don't know who you are. So I want to get to know who you are a little bit more so that I can respect your time and personalize it for you. So I think you'll see more personalization come in as well if you you can already, if you follow our Insights app, you can really personalize it now, uh, but on the desktop, it's a little bit challenging, uh, but I think there'll be more technological progress on that front. And at the end of the day, we have to um, have really good writing and good editing. That doesn't change the core of what we do as McKinsey Publishing. Uh, in the short term, I have a feeling that, like uh, most organizations, 2023 is gonna be challenging. The world is uh, entering a phase of extreme uncertainties that we haven't seen in the last couple of decades. And I think we all have to make sure that uh, um, there is, first of all, significant ROI to what we do, but get smarter at how we do what we do, manage both the demand and supply um, side of things. Uh, so I think in the short term, it'll be much more kind of uh, making sure are we being efficient? Um, and are we kind of doing all the right things for our audiences? But there's a saying that we are using increasingly at McKinsey, which is that, um, and this comes from um, uh, a Brazilian um, Formula One driver, Ayrton Senna, who kind of says that um, you can't pass 15 cars in summer, sunny weather, but you can pass pretty much all of them when it's (laughs) raining. So I think next year is gonna be rainy, right? Uh, The recession, Uh, the ongoing war in Europe, the energy crisis, uh, a lot of questions around where is globalization going. So it is cloudy in parts of the world. It is going to be raining. We don't intend to not just sit back, but we want to help our clients pass um, their competition. But along the way, we want also to kind of make sure that we are passing our competition too. Not that in publishing, there are many areas where we we are behind, but we want to maintain the lead.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, so now a question, you know, projecting your skill needs within publishing and experience in within McKinsey and looking, because for I think a year and a half, you taught at Columbia in, in the School of Journalism. Do you think based on your Columbia experience or maybe knowledge of other universities and their schools of journalism or communications, do you think the I guess to me they're kids. <laughs> the students that are in these programs are aware of working at places like McKinsey, and it doesn't always have to be McKinsey, but Bain. You know these quote-unquote thought leadership jobs in professional services or tech firms or industrial right. manufacturers that have somebody involved in thought leadership. Do you think the from your experience at Columbia that students are aware of of this as a possible career? It's not a challenge with the students, honestly. I think it's a problem with the faculty. Um,
1: I don't think that the educators fully understand what we do because at this end of the spectrum is pure news, right? Covering news, being in a newsroom and all of that. So that comes with its own uh, guardrails and you know values and ethics and all of that. And at the other end, as you know, the so-called deep dark side is PR. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that good thought leadership, is actually in the middle and oftentimes closer to the news side of things, minus the news spin, right? In terms of just accuracy, in terms of just having underlying robust data and facts. And I think there is that myth that most thought leadership is just commercial. All it's doing is trying to sell things, right? I often tell people, have you read a McKinsey article? Because if you read one and show me where McKinsey is even mentioned in it, then I would want to have a discussion with you, right? So I think we haven't done a good job of like talking about it in those settings, but honestly, we haven't had to because the news industry has been in such turmoil for the last 15, 20 years that our ability to find talented editors and all of those folks has been pretty high, right? If I post a job for a senior editor, I get 500 applications, a lot of them with 10 to 20 years of like hardcore media experience. But it has also meant that I think most of our uh, staffing has tended to be older, often people who see it as a post journalism career, which is not bad because we do need those specialists. What we have done is we have created in the last three years a robust internship program, oftentimes not to bring in editors fresh off the college graduation, because I do think for our kind of writing, and you know this well, you do need subject matter expertise. Right? and you need to understand that you're writing for a sophisticated audience. So perhaps that does come with years of some content journalism background, but where I'm finding a lot of um, need is video, podcasts, audience development, insights, email. right? And that's where I think younger uh, people with like more digital talent are there and are not thinking about us as the right places to go. And I think the onus is on us to show them that you can still do honest, good, impactful content. It's not news, but it is equally satisfying and we need good storytellers, right? That's what journalism needs as well. So I think the onus is on us to kind of engage with more of the journalism schools. Some schools like Northwestern, which have thought of uh, their school as like a more of a broader school, are much more open to it. Colombia is going to be impossible because Colombia thinks of itself as a nine-month journalism master's finishing program. For them, I think it's like not we are not going to be the sweet spot ever. But I think the faculty there could better understand that there is some really good work going on, and honestly, there are lots of examples. I did a series the last two years where we've learned a lot of lessons that we are applying now called McKinsey for kids i will I will stack that up against the best of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal interactive things because from an engagement point of view. I think that's the opportunity for us to kind of show them that we are doing great work, and if at the end of the day you want to be a good storyteller with like multimedia skills, you could very much do that at a McKinsey.
0: yeah. Now, Raju, you mentioned all the you know journalists or ex-journalists who apply for jobs at McKinsey, and I've seen this over 35 years. And you know, you made the transition from from working in business journalism to working at, at McKinsey for a large professional services firm. and leadership? So what is your advice for these business journalists or other journalists who are applying or thinking of applying? You know, if they get a job with you guys or at Bain or or at PwC or or Salesforce to do the kind of work that you guys do here in thought leadership, what's your biggest advice for them about the transition that they will have to make and what they're gonna have to do to enjoy their jobs and do it well? I think the biggest transition,
1: and this is a mental and emotional one, Bob, is that if you are a journalist, no matter how well your organization is doing or not doing, you are the product. right? What you do in your newsroom is the product. You have to recognize that when you come into roles like the roles I'm in, right, I'm equally valuable, but I'm in support of the main product, which is consulting. And it's a real mind shift that to go from being seen as the center of gravity to kind of coming and saying, what I do helps the center of gravity continue to grow. And honestly, it's tough adjustment. And so I spend a lot of time and I interview journalists for roles that we've filled in the last few years, really emphasizing that, saying that, are you sure that you're ready for that, right? Because you do find that um, you bring a lot of value and we are professionalizing our uh, firm functions like anybody else's in a very meaningful way, bringing in some really great talent. Uh, but you have to recognize that at the end of the day, we are in service of our consulting It may not be obvious, it may not be directed, and McKinsey, it is actually, um, it is not a lead gen kind of a publishing model at all, but end of the day, you are in publishing in McKinsey because it helps our consulting side, right? So to me, that's the biggest mental adjustment. The other adjustments are uh, situational rather than, so I can talk a little bit about McKinsey. For example, given our culture, we don't have positional authority meaning that I can't say I'm the publisher, this is the way it's going to happen. I have to sell the idea if somebody, because we have this belief that anybody has the right to dissent, but also by the way, has the obligation to engage. Once we all agree, this is the right thing to do. In newsrooms, while they deceptively feel non-hierarchical, they actually are very hierarchical. An editor may sit around a room and everybody may weigh in and very open conversations, but at the end of it, the editor says, okay, this is what I'm doing and everybody walks in place. At McKinsey, I think we talk a lot more about these things. So, but the advantages—you could be like me; I could be a newcomer with no history of McKinsey. But if I have a good idea, people will say, "Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it." Right. So, there's both advantage and disadvantage. So, you shouldn't again. I think coming in and being humble enough to know that you bring a lot to the table, but you also can learn a lot. Um, I think. And then finally, for me personally, the biggest. Interesting thing has been, I I didn't realize it right away, but I never think about monetizing the individual reader. In journalism, you spend so much time because you focus a lot on kind of, how do I get this person to subscribe? Or how do I get this person to stay on the site so that I can show them a lot more ads, right? Which is why when I came here, I said, we're not gonna measure time spent because time spent is a completely irrelevant thing because you could game it right if your site is very hard to read go through and find things people are spending a lot of time on your site but that's not the valuable way of thinking about it so the way we measure is that has somebody gone at least a third into the article before we say that's a real read so i think different ways of measuring it because i'm not monetizing you as a reader uh, so that makes a big
0: difference so what would be your advice um you know so i asked you about the on the um the transition that a journalist would have to make to go to a company like McKinsey or PwC Bay. On the, on the McKinsey side of things, what would be your advice for people like you and other professional services firm that have a thought leadership function or are thinking of creating one and bringing journalists among others in to, you know, to help with content? What would be your advice for, for the people who run those thought leadership groups in these companies about the care and feeding and nurturing of these ex-journalists who 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 are being brought into the firm. And as you say, they're kind of not the, you know, they're not at the center of the universe. You know, they're helping the center of the universe, right? And that's a big transition. Yeah.
1: Um, And we, I'm not saying we do a great job of it, it, it's a work in progress, but the onboarding and pairing them with people who were seasoned journalists and are now have been at McKinsey for a long time and who kind of get the system. Is very critical the one-on-one pairing because oftentimes in your first many many months at McKinsey, if you are a if you are a new journalist who has come in, you should get used to your copy being what's called top edited, meaning it's com- it'll come back to you completely redlined by an executive editor in my team, and if you take that as a personal failure, you're going to struggle. But if you take that as ah this is what makes it an interesting McKinsey article for McKinsey's audience. And I'm learning from it. And over time, I will get to top edit somebody else. I think that's very important. You have to have a bit of a thick skin and confidence in your own abilities. The number of times that I try to sell an idea and it doesn't fly and I'm like, clearly I'm not selling it the way McKinsey's used to be being told about it. It's very profound, by the way. I mean, there's a learning curve to that, that uh, you pick up. But you've got to have confidence, and there's a reason why they hired you because getting hired at McKinsey is usually a gauntlet of many, many interviews. I think I had about 20 of them before I got in. So clearly they want you, right? So I think you have to be comfortable in that, but you also have to be very open to recognizing that you're working at a place where everybody is extremely talented. Right? It's a hard place to get to. We get a million applications and we hire like four or five thousand people a year. So I think that comfort level has to be there. And then over time, you will develop expertise and you will start realizing, and we often get this now where a senior partner will say, "Hey, can I get X to always edit my articles?" And then you know you've like you've succeeded. It'll take time. I three years in, uh, there are times when I feel like I don't know anything about this place. and I th- but it's also good, though, right? You want to have that you want to have that sense of like you're still learning all the time.
0: Yeah, Raju, um, we're gonna we'll wrap this up. I could go on and ask you questions for a couple of hours easily, <laughs> but I know, I know I can't. So thank you so much for being uh, on on our uh, video and podcast. And we will be talking soon, and hopefully very soon again for for another episode. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate you having me. Ever since the late 1980s, when I began watching how McKinsey approached thought leadership, I've been highly impressed by what they've done. This includes their McKinsey quarterly management journal, their move to make that journal a digital publication, the many successful books that McKinsey has published, going way back to In Search of Excellence, their research think tank, the McKinsey Global Institute, and more recently, their data visualization activities. In my discussion with Raju Narasetti this month, I was especially interested to learn about the importance that McKinsey attaches to the digital experience in viewing its thought leadership content. Now, in the old days of thought leadership, we largely thought about content in two dimensions, producing high quality ideas, and then marketing and selling those ideas. But as Raju and McKinsey are showing us now on McKinsey.com, success with thought leadership is not just about content and not just about marketing. It's also how you present your content online, how you make it visually informative and compelling, and how that will increasingly separate you from your competitors. Now, Raju is the 13th person we've interviewed this year on this video podcast series, which we launched at the beginning of 2022. In 2023, we will continue to bring you highly accomplished people in the field of thought leadership, both thought leadership professionals, that's the people who work with experts to push, package, publish, present, and help them get recognized for their expertise, and famous thought leaders themselves. Until then, my co-host Alan Alper and I wish you a very happy holiday.